0: Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace and Fortnite from Epic Games.
1: Liftoff is a fortnightly show uh, where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell and I'm joined as always by my co host, Stephen Hackett. Stephen, we're sponsored by Space, Squarespace, and Fortnite. This is a fortnightly space podcast. It's never going to get better than this. I see what Carrie did, and she can't top this. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. What? What next? I don't. I don't even know. I don't know. Anyway, um, this is the podcast that we started several years ago, thinking that there wouldn't be enough stuff to talk about about space, and we were wrong. There's an enormous amount of stuff to talk about about space.
0: That's our lives now. That that is our lives. Although um, we're going to start with a toy.
1: Okay. (laughs) This is why we do it.
0: Why we do it? Because we love it. Yeah. And I feel like I am at the intersection of space and Lego. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This has been going around Twitter. Thank you to everyone who made me aware of this. Uh, There's going to be a really cool 2300 piece, $200 space shuttle set coming out April 1st. And I 100% will be ordering this. It's on my to-do list early in the morning on April 1st. Try to get my hands on this thing.
1: No fooling. It's Mm -mm. real.
0: It's real. The little, little
1: little Hubble Space Telescope is the part that killed me about it.
0: It's great. Yeah, so this is a discovery on, I believe it's STS-31, and it's got the Hubble in the bay, and it has a Canada arm, so it can lift it out of the bay and put it into orbit. It looks really cool. It's on a stand. Uh, there's been a lot of space Lego stuff. They did the International Space Station. They did a, a lunar module. I've got both of those. I also have the last complicated Space Shuttle they did in the 90s. I bought one on eBay years ago. It sits on my desk, right, mm. kind of behind my display. And so I'm excited about this one, too, because I can't help myself, and this is going to look awesome in my office. Yeah,
1: I uh, encourage all LEGO enthusiasts who like Space to, to check it out, because that little Hubble is super adorable. It but, is uh, super don't buy, adorable. <laughs> don't buy yours too soon, because Steven needs one.
0: That's right. I'll tweet once I have mine, and <laughs> then everyone okay. else
1: can... <laughs> then everyone else can uh, can join you know steven you know what's gonna be a lego toy eventually is the ingenuity hu- helicopter on mars
0: 100 percent. you were right it's, about right
1: that. it's practically already one <laughs> so i want to give a little ingenuity update Please. um this is remember perseverance landed on mars uh how could we forget but but tucked underneath its little belly shielded by a little debris shield is uh is ingenuity the mars helicopter it weighs about four pounds charges via a solar panel it's adorable and it uh transmits it's got a little tiny radio that transmits back to perseverance it's got a range of about 900 meters so uh americans nine football fields do it that way um but so what they did is uh the Perseverance has dropped the produ- protective uh, debris shield off. So littering on Mars. It's continuing. Yeah. It's what we do. There's a lot of it. We send things to Mars and junk up the place. Um, it's I mean, still look, folded we up. Left,
0: we left bags of poop on the moon. So. It's true.
1: It's No, this is what we do. This is what humans... like. Essentially, if we boil down all of human spaceflight, it is us just littering the universe with our junk. <laughs> We, we we seek to learn more about the universe by filling it with our junk. Just I'm just saying, you just got to get over it. Uh, the anyway, it's still folded up. There's a, a phrase that that has been used, which is reverse origami, which I like. <laughs> so basically, they have to do a lot of unfolding of the little bits because it's folded up in its flight configuration. But we've seen a first image of it tucked under there. Um, it's like that scene in Iron Man where the guy on the on the on the fighter jet. It looks over at the other fighter jet and sees that Iron Man is hanging onto it. And they're like, ah, there's a thing on your, on your plane. It's a little (laughs) like that, except a little less threatening. There is a little helicopter under the belly of Perseverance. Um, In a couple of days, they're going to drive to the drop-off point, the flight zone drop-off point. And at that point, uh, Ingenuity will be released onto the surface and then Perseverance motors away it's going to get about a hundred meters americans one football field uh out of the way because you know what if it flies off sideways and smashes into perseverance and so they don't want they don't want it to be in uh in any danger because this is still an experimental craft Um, but anyway when you're you're asking yourself when are we going to see a little helicopter fly around on the surface of mars and the answer is no sooner than early april um they're planning five little trips, little jaunts in a short window. Within it'll be about a 30 day window. After 30 days, the Ingenuity helicopter mission is done, and they won't. It's not one of those things where they're going to do the extended mission, apparently, where they're like, oh, we could fly this helicopter for ages. Because essentially, they don't want to up Perseverance's style more than necessary. Perseverance has a lot of things to do on its own, and it's sort of hanging around to do this helicopter stunt, which. I, I think there is a little. I got a sense when they announced the ingenuity part of the mission that that some of the people who've been working on Perseverance for years were a little bit like, oh man, like it's like bringing your little brother with you somewhere, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> uh, you know. But we're we're roving here on Mars. We got stuff to do. We're working on all this stuff. And now we got to wait around while a helicopter. And I think also people are like, ooh, helicopter on Mars, and like we put a car on Mars that's going to learn all these things about the history of water on Mars and everybody in the world is just like, yeah, but the helicopter. So (laughs) there's a little bit, I feel like a little bit of friction, but at the same time, it is pretty cool. It is pretty cool.
0: It is pretty cool. And like you said, this is experimental and it is designed to teach us about the, not only the mechanics of this, because flying in a place with a tiny fraction of an atmosphere that we have is complicated um this thing had to be really lightweight but also be stable and be strong enough to withstand uh you know the seven minutes of terror to get get down to the surface of the planet and we don't know
1: like this is the thing is the only test flights that have been done for this thing were done in a chamber um actually at uh, nasa ames which they have that that chamber where they can evacuate the uh the atmosphere in it to get it to be like Mars level of atmosphere because Mars has a thinner atmosphere. You, it takes a lot more effort to lift a helicopter, to generate lift on Mars because there's less atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then they have to do like the thing where they kind of like got bungee cords and stuff on it to simulate Mars gravity because Mars gravity is also not Earth gravity. So we've done those tests, but like they're tests. <laughs> Are they... Are they real? Did it, did it really work? And the only way to tell is to actually be in Mars gravity and Mars atmosphere and give it a try. And so that's, that's one of the big questions is, did we do it? Did we figure it out? Is it going to work? Because the potential is huge, right? The potential to get around on Mars and see all sorts of different stuff is pretty huge.
0: NASA, as we recorded this, they're holding a press conference about Ingenuity. Again, we're leading up, you know, the next couple of weeks to see this thing go. Um, and I just, I just saw something from them that the, uh, the Ingenuity spacecraft carries a small piece of the Wright brothers' original airplane with it. Wow. That's kind of cool. That's great. I love um, it. As in a small piece of fabric. That's pretty sweet. Nice. So, yeah, hopefully our next episode, we'll be talking about this. Uh, hopefully they get this going soon. I'm really excited. I'm one that's like all about the little brother. We're still going to talk about Perseverance. It's okay. It's okay. Perseverance is
1: going to get a lot of coverage. This too shall pass. Eventually the helicopter will be done. But in the meantime, ooh, Mars helicopter. It's very exciting.
0: While all of that's going on, uh, SpaceX continues to build in Texas. Uh, SN11 is being tested. It had a static fire yesterday. It could launch later this week as we record this. Fingers crossed for that—that that they're ready to go and they can stick the landing. You know, we spoke last time where it landed, uh, it landed hard, and then had a second less ex- uh, plan to take off. Yeah, <laughs> a few more, more later.
1: exciting, more exciting actually yeah. takeoff. You could argue because it was uh, very spectacular, but mm-hmm. it didn't last very long and it was not
0: survivable. Yep. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, if that wasn't enough. Uh, the first super heavy prototype, BN One, has been stacked, and could be gra- could begin ground testing in the next few weeks. So, I think once they feel confident they've got this landing maneuver dialed in, they're gonna uh, be moving to the uh, the bigger version, which is a big big rocket.
1: Yeah, super heavy. Like because the sp- the the spaceship Starship spaceship. It's a it's a spaceship. It's called Starship. Uh, the launch system. Hmm. Is, what would you abbreviate that as? I wouldn't. I would definitely not abbreviate it. <laughs> is the super heavy on the bottom, and then what we know as the Starship is actually the the upper stage, right? Right. And so, ultimately, you want to test that super heavy, and then you want to feel really good about the upper stage, and then you want to launch them together right like th- that's what they're going for here and they're doing it in these different stages but we're about to see another vehicle a big big rocket uh enter its testing down in texas so there's a lot going on here for uh for spacex as a, a starship the whole project rolls forward
0: mm-hmm. yeah and this this uh b one prototype uh this stage doesn't have to do the cool spin around and land maneuver From what they've shown so far, it's a vertical takeoff, and they want to land vertically. Ultimately, with the goal of landing back on its own launch pad, Mm -hmm. which I don't, I can't imagine will be part of the first test. But eventually, that's what they want to be able to do. Is yeah, this is the whole, you know, it's a
1: reusable first stage. They want it to be like Falcon Nine and Falcon Heavy. They want this thing to come back because the whole game that SpaceX is playing is the ability to reuse stuff so with with starship the idea is they're going to reuse that first stage and they're going to reuse the second stage which obviously they don't do with the with their current falcon nine so uh really interesting stuff going on here because yeah we're going to end up potentially with a spectacular some spectacular at least attempts and ultimately landings with this very large rocket the super heavy
0: We've got one more pre-flight checklist item. You want to tell us about our interstellar visitor? Yes. Yes. It's Oumuamua,
1: uh, first confirmed interstellar object to be observed passing through the solar system. We actually think that this happens all the time, but we haven't had the ability to really look and weren't looking until recently. And now we've spotted two of them. And Oumuamua was the first. We couldn't see it very well. What we did see was actually a little bit confusing. It was initially spotted determined that it was tumbling it was longer than it was wide so you know there's a picture that somebody drew as an artist's conception of like a cigar shaped kind of rock um no signs of it being a comet so everybody thought more like an asteroid probably what's weird is that Oumuamua seems to have increased its speed on its way out of the solar system which suggests more of a comet like behavior but it didn't look like a comet Um, This has led to lots of speculation. So there's this astronomer named Avi Loeb who wrote a book suggesting that Oumuamua was an alien spaceship or artifact, proving that Dr. Loeb is not a subscriber to the philosophy that it's never aliens. (laughs) It's never aliens. Uh, Dr. Loeb is interestingly part of the Breakthrough Starshot Project, which is uh, this project that proposes to use solar or laser sail-driven tiny, teeny, tiny probes, nanoprobes, to send them interstellar distances. The idea that you'd have a little teeny tiny probe or a fleet of little teeny tiny probes with solar sails, and you'd fire a laser at them. And in a fairly short period of time, considering the distance involved, you would accelerate them and, and have them fly by like the Alpha Centauri system, Hmm. let's say. So he's a part of that. And, and I say that to say that he is open to broad possibilities and that's good. But, um, you know, this seems pretty extreme and will require some extreme evidence. I, I think it's worth being open-minded enough to walk through the possibilities. Uh, however, I feel like It's Never Aliens is a is a really good way to go. It's Never yeah. Aliens has never been wrong. And the ar- counter-argument would be, well, maybe it'll be wrong sometime. And the answer is, yeah, maybe. Maybe, but I don't know. Uh, it also feels a little bit with Breakthrough Starshot that... Perhaps Dr. Loeb. I mean, he's selling something already. He's selling a book, and he's also selling this project. So I have skepticism about the the whole. Oumuamua is an alien artifact. Sounds fun, but yeah, yeah, it's never alien, Stephen. Not yet, not yet. Okay, yeah, keep hope alive. So there are other theories. Another theory about Oumuamua emerged uh, from scientists from Yale and the University of Chicago. They proposed that it was made of frozen hydrogen. Now this is wild. So the idea here is there's a molecular cloud that's sort of like a birthplace of stars and all of that, and there might be a chunk of frozen hydrogen, so it's super, super cold. Because remember, hydrogen is normally found as gas, but it would be frozen, so it's just a couple of degrees uh, above absolute zero. problem with this theory is that we've never actually seen frozen hydrogen in nature, and it would need to have remained really, really cold for the whole trip. Uh, which seems unlikely because this thing's been out there for a while traveling over interstellar distances. However, this inspired some scientists at Arizona State University to say what other ices could it be if it's not frozen hydrogen? And this is the new sort of study that just came out. Um, They were thinking about Pluto and the fact that Pluto is covered with glaciers of nitrogen ice. And uh, what's more interesting even than that is that Oumuamua's color is more or less the same as Pluto's color. So their theory is that Oumuamua was actually part of a Pluto-like body at the edge of a different solar system. Was That body was hit by an asteroid, and this piece of that planet was ejected by the impact and then spent half a billion years just kind of motoring along with its little chunky self until it got to our solar system. And over half a a billion years, it would have lost about half of its original mass, just in interstellar space. But once it got close to a sun, once the sun, our sun, for the first time, once it got close to a star, it's going to boil that nitrogen right off. And so their thought is that by the time it got to the end and was exiting our solar system, Kind of like a bar of soap in the shower, it was like a little <laughs> sliver, like 10% left of what it did. So we, the idea here is that the sun, because it was probably Oumuamua's first encounter, boiled off most of its nitrogen ice. And that explains the acceleration because of the sublimation of the nitrogen ice in the relatively warm area that surrounds our star as opposed to interstellar space. Um, and I think to their credit, they also commissioned art so that we don't just have that one picture of the kind of cigar shaped object. And in this one, it's shaped more like a pancake, which they think is sort of, a, a better analog for maybe what its shape was that explains the, the changing in light. Um, uh, it also looks a little bit like a cow patty. Uh, also <laughs> to me, it looks a little like the Millennium Falcon. So I guess it does. That's what I was going to say. But it's not, it's not aliens. It's not a spaceship, but, but you know. Who knows? Maybe it's the Millennium Falcon. Could be a chunk of a Pluto-like exoplanet somewhere. So uh, an interesting story um, where we have this limited amount of information about a very interesting object and trying to figure out uh, what it might be. So this is this is a, a, a very intriguing theory that it looks kind of like Pluto. So what if it was mostly frozen nitrogen ice like Pluto? And uh, the that would explain... Sort of like following on from the hydrogen, like uh, hydrogen maybe not, but what if it was? Uh, what if it was nitrogen? So yeah, that's the story. Uh, it's never aliens, but maybe it's a a piece of a Pluto.
0: Yeah, and we haven't seen a Pluto like exoplanet that they're if they're like Pluto, very small, and those are harder to see with our our current way of detecting exoplanets. But the fact that we have one seems to indicate that there could be others, just like we have seen other planets and other systems that look like planets we have you know similar makeup and so yeah i think the the exo pluto idea definitely holds water yeah nice plus exo pluto is just fun to say mm. let's take a break
1: oh good idea let me tell you about our first sponsor this episode of liftoff is brought to you by squarespace again, space. It's in the title. Come on people, make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, maybe you want to create a portfolio or a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. It lets you make a thing and put it on the web. There's nothing to install. You don't have to worry about software updates and patches and security fears and stuff like that. Like it just happens. It's on Squarespace. You don't worry about any of that. They take care of all of that stuff. They've got award-winning twenty-four-seven customer support. If you need any help, they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name for your project. And all of those award-winning templates are beautiful, and they'll let you show off your great ideas. Steven, you use Squarespace, right? I do. I've built a bunch of sites on it over the years. Yeah, it's and it's super easy. And and I one of the things that I like about your stories about Squarespace is. It's maintainable because you're handing these things off to people to run them. You can, with Squarespace sites, you're sort of like, here it is. Here's your site. Here's how you use it. And you can kind of walk away because it's all pretty intuitive once it's set up and they can add pages to their site and all of that and edit their their pages
0: without having to call you up and say, Stephen, can you change the homepage? <laughs> yep. Yep. They can just drag and drop content in and uh, upload pictures and change text around and they don't have to be afraid about breaking it, which is really the best part. It's very nice. So plans start at the
1: unbelievable price of just $12 a month, and you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use this offer code liftoff, that's us to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for Liftoff. Once again, that's squarespace.com/slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website.
0: It is time for everyone's favorite segment. Not everyone's favorite segment. Some people's favorite segment, the SLS segment. That stands for Space Launch System Segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. That was exciting. I try. Good news. The green run, the much-anticipated full-length firing of the first SLS core stage with its Oh four... man, Stephen, what delayed it this time? No, it happened. Oh, it... It's weird. (laughs) What? It's here. It happened. All four RS-25 engines fired for the full duration of the eight-minute test, generated a cool 1.6 million pounds of thrust. This took place on March 18th. And by all accounts, they still have some work to do, but by all accounts, it was a success. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I watched the whole thing and there's nothing like watching a rocket not go anywhere for eight, for <laughs> eight minutes, minutes and 19 <laughs> seconds. But uh, but again, the drama is high because you know what the stakes are here, how much money has gone into this project and the failure of the first test. So uh, it was a big deal. and And having gone through this pass and it seems like everything ended up in pretty good shape. They have to analyze everything. You know, the next step is to prepare it for an actual launch.
0: That's right. So if you if you did watch it, uh, there was a, a one moment where it looked like, oh gosh, something's wrong. And there was some fire, visible fire around one of the RS-25s. And they addressed that in the press conference afterwards. I remember the first test in January got cut short. And one of the issues was with a valve, but there was an also, also an issue with the the material, the insulating material that goes around the top of the RS-25s where they attach to the core stage to keep heat out of sort of the delicate parts. And there were, uh, that insulation had some burn by and there's some issues. Uh, they basically really m- went in there, made it much thicker and used a different material. And there was some burn off of that material. And they said it was expected during the test, but during flight, they don't anticipate to see that because you'll be moving at altitude. And by right. the time that could be an issue, there's not a lot of oxygen, and it right. should be fine. And, and this test shows even if it does burn a little bit, that it that it's fine. So it looked scary for a second. In fact, I sort uh-huh. of leaned forward in my chair thinking, oh, gosh, like, what is that? And um, But it was uh, really no concern. It seems like they were expecting it. Uh, if you were watching it also, you would see the RS-25s move around. So they're gimbling. Cause the thing's got to pitch over and, and do these maneuvers. Uh, they powered up. They then they they throttled down a little bit, pretending to go through max Q and throttling back up. Basically, the whole flight profile was run through, and it, it. I mean, hats off to the folks who've worked on this. You know, it it was a success. I think sometimes people listen to this show and listen to us talk about this program and think that we want it to fail, and I certainly don't. I I do think the program is not the best idea. We can get into that in a minute, but. I've I've never wanted to, like, tune into one of these things and see something catastrophic happen. It's a lot of money and a lot of time. And so it is exciting to see it succeed. And I'm sure people who've been working on this for a decade, you know, so much rides on this test. It's the only full-length test they're ever going to do. Uh, it needed to go perfectly, which is why they ran it a second time. Yeah. So it's good. You know, we... we...
1: Have lots of issues with aspects of the SLS, but this has been a long a long time coming, a real long time coming, and it does mean that they can move ahead, which is, uh, you know, that's the best thing to, to finally get. We've been talking about the green run for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, they seem to have gotten past it now.
0: Yep. I have some fun numbers for you about okay. the green run. All right. So, it ran for eight minutes and 19 seconds. It was... Uh, hooked up to a network of 114 tanker trucks and six barges, all full of propellant. All the propellant runs in lines up to the B2 test stand to fuel the rocket, just like other rockets. Like, I'm sure everyone's seen a Falcon 9 launch where there's uh, what looks like smoke, but it's actually condensation coming off the rocket. Is these super chilled propellants uh, boil off around the edges of the rocket? So you're you're, you're filling it right to the last minute. You unplug it and you let it you let it rep. Um, so, all that infrastructure was in place. Uh, the flame deflector on, on, at Stennis uh, was supplied with more than 300,000 gallons of water per minute. <laughs> it's a bunch of water moving through that thing. It's like a waterfall.
1: There's this, just basically, if you look at the test stand, there's this huge waterfall that goes on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, a lot of that cloud you see is actually steam. It's water being vaporized as the exhaust gases hit it mm-hmm. and so yeah a lot of big numbers when you're talking about about testing something this big and of course once they're at Kennedy and they're on the real launch pad at some point in the future uh that infrastructure is there and so you're you don't you're not backing in 114 trucks but it's to with this test it doesn't make sense to build all that infrastructure for a test you're going to run one time so um so yeah that's that's the green run it's really exciting to have it to have it Done and to, and to move forward from this because now yeah. they get to refurbish it. They put it on the barge and they they row it over to Florida. That's right. It's, it is. Yeah. There's just
1: people rowing it. Stroke, stroke, yep. stroke all the well, way to no Florida. Well, there's no fuel in it. It doesn't weigh as much. But I do love so, that. That's Yeah. Good. So it's the I like the I like that they they do things by barge in the space program. It's uh it's a lot of fun. The the thing that gave me spatial nostalgia was actually not seeing those main engines, although they definitely do, but they have the thing that looks like sparklers, which are these little ignition things. I forget what they're called, but they're basically there because there can be hydrogen leaks and the these little sparklers are like burning off the evaporating uh hydrogen so that it doesn't build up and explode. And they had these in the space shuttle too. These little, just at the very bottom by the engines, there are these little spark sparkler things that come on a few seconds before launch in order to prevent that. And I was like, Oh, those guys, I know those guys. It's like taking me back. So definitely a bunch of familiar space shuttle technology on this thing. And, uh, and uh, maybe it'll give us all the space shuttle feels when, this first uh first Artemis launch happens whenever that is. End of the end of the year they say, which we know official uh slogan of, of liftoff. Late in the year means next year. They are
0: called the Radial Outward Firing Igniters. Okay. Rofi. Rofi, but shorthand sparklers. So you were you were right. The spark see? They do. They look and like the SLS is basically um recycled shuttle parts. So it makes sense to see those there. Yep. We're going to talk um, in a minute about NASA's new administrator, presumed administrator. He's got to get through through the Senate. But there is a, a team put in place, a transition team put in place by the Biden administration to uh, prepare the way, if you will, for this new administrator. And part of their activity, this is, comes from an article in Ars Technica uh, by Eric Berger, is looking at the affordability of the SLS program. Um, It's being led by this transition team. Uh, The analysis is being led by uh, Paul McConaughey, who is actually a former deputy center director for NASA Marshall, which has been home for the SLS from the start. Marshall oversees the SLS program. So someone who's very familiar with it, knows it probably better than almost anyone else, And they are looking at the amount of money needed to complete it, the amount of money to evolve it. Because if you remember, the SLS is not really just one rocket. What they're building now is the first block, but they're supposed to be a uh, a more powerful upper stage called the exploration upper stage. Eventually, the core stage will be more powerful and and they're going to build it up over time, build its capacity up over time. And they're looking at all of that, trying to understand what is the, the long-term plan here. Because it is estimated that each launch of the SLS will be $2 billion. So $2 billion a flight when you need an SLS. Uh, and that doesn't count the mm-hmm. roughly $20 billion that the government has already spent on the rocket and its corresponding ground systems at Kennedy. That's a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. The Falcon Heavy costs about a tenth of that per launch now it cannot match the capacity it's only got about two-thirds the capacity of the sls but as we spoke about earlier spacex is hard at work on their starship launch system what would you if that had to have letters instead of a name what would you call it i can't think of what you would call it
1: um i i don't think i don't think i would I don't think I would. I think it's interesting, though, because you can see how this boxes the SLS in, because it literally, if Falcon Heavy costs one-tenth of that, uh, it means that you could get to more capacity than the SLS with two Falcon Heavy launches and you've saved a lot of money, even if you have to spend a little bit of extra money to put the things together in space. But uh, if you're just supplying the space station or something, you just make two launches and you could do that. Or, or, if So really, they're boxing it in to say, well, what we really need is something that can carry in one shot, and it has to be one shot, something that is above the capacity of the Falcon Heavy. And that's more limiting And then you have Starship coming behind it, and that would be um, even more difficult for SLS to find a reason
0: to exist. I think that's exactly right. And there may be launches that do require one big rocket before SpaceX is ready. But in thinking about Artemis, you know, you could probably put Gateway up in a couple of pieces and join it in space. We have the ability to do that, see the International Space Station. And so you have on one side the cost and you have on the other side the capability. And I think no matter which way you divide that pie, the SLS kind of comes out on the short end of the stick. I've really mixed my metaphors here. Just like I'm all the way into mixed metaphor land. Is there pie on pie, pie on, on a stick? A stick now? No. I'm from the South. We eat okay. anything on a stick,
1: man. You can fry anything. So tell me about... Uh... How this fits with the new administration, then?
0: Yeah. So part of this is a little unknown. It's a little unknown what this transition team is doing. NASA's quote in Eric's article is very much like just government speak. Like we are looking at the program. This is ongoing work. We are studying things. Like okay, that's not super useful. Yeah. Whenever they ask a space question to Jensaki,
1: the uh, the um, what is she press secretary? Yeah. she sort of like, clearly doesn't know the answer. <laughs> and I think that's interesting that the press secretary is not remotely briefed on anything involving NASA. Um, that, that does say something, right? Like we, uh, and when we're going to talk about what the one kind of clear thing that's happened thus far, but, um, this is just floating out there in terms of like, they're kind of continuing the work because they've been working on it, but, um, we don't it's just guesswork at this point about how the Biden administration feels about SLS. It
0: is. And I think even if you look at things like just the exploration upper stage, which some work has been done. It's been designed. It, te- it passed some validation testing. But it, this could end up uh, – one of the suggestions in Eric's article is – Basically, there's never a future block of the SLS, that what we have now is what we'll have, and currently, it it would be the world's most capable heavy lift vehicle, but the EUS never gets built, basically. Right. Currently, in the federal budget, there's $400 for the development of that stage, and that's not nearly enough. It doesn't seem like to me, so that's kind of i think to keep it alive but i think one outcome could be we're going to have the sls but we're not going to go any further with that upper stage we're not going to go any further with the more powerful solid rocket boosters and the other components that make up future versions of the sls um at least for now and maybe if needs arise in the future that restarts some people i feel don't think it's worth continuing to invest in it because until it's been tested in flight, um, I don't. At the end of last year, there's a report going around, and this was about the Europa Clipper. That the Clipper team was worried about flying on the SLS because of noise and vibration concerns, and that take okay, take Congress has legally tied the SLS and Europa Clipper together at least for now, but take it off the table. There may be like actual incompatibility issues between the spacecraft and its launch vehicle, and the more that that happens, the more that planned things get stripped away from the SLS. Or they do fly it, and they say, "Okay, well it's okay with Orion on top of it because Orion's really big and heavy, but you can't really launch lighter things on this because you're going to have all of these all of these other issues." like you said it slowly boxes it in and i can't help but think that over time just like more and more walls get put up between sls and the future that it promised as spacex comes online with its vehicles as well like that just becomes a tighter and tighter box that it's in and it you know it may be that it gets a couple launches off and that's it and we've spent twenty billion dollars or by that point thirty billion dollars or whatever ends up being at the end of the day without that much to show for it. And so I think the Biden team is trying to tease out all of those possibilities and try to steer this thing the best that it can because it is so far along, you probably couldn't cancel it outright, but thinking about what will its use be once it's done and maybe trying to to limit that in some way. Yeah, I keep
1: on thinking of Eric Berger's uh, 1.5 launches as setting the over and under. The idea that that the real bet is, do you think that we'll only have one or do you think it will have two or more? And that that's the 50-50, right? That's how how overs and unders work. And I I keep thinking about that because, like, yeah, on one level, you see them doing the first launch. And then there's a question of, like, by then how do we feel about it? Even if it's successful, how do we feel about it? And then with the price tag for each successive one, yes, there's an enormous sunk cost here, but also the sooner you stop it, the more money you save, except who? what happens to the people working on it? What happens to that project? Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds to me like everybody's at this point just sort of waiting to see what happens with this launch and and i said that about the green run too that i think that there's a lot of people who are like well Mm -hmm. let's see if it even works and 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 can we find an exit here or can we scale this back to something that's got uh, a very simplified set of uses and that seemed to be where they were going in the in the bridenstine era that seemed to be where they were headed with sort of like we're going to use everybody else's uh things except we're going to use sls when it's taking people to the moon and and that's it um
0: but There will be a time when that doesn't make sense either. And this could all change when we see a new administrator. So let's take a break and then talk about that. All right. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Fortnite from Epic Games. The new season of Fortnite is here. If you play Fortnite or know anything about it, you'll know that the storyline evolves with every season and that every season it's better than ever. Whether you're playing Battle Royale every day or hopping in for special events in party royale, the island changes with every development that gets thrown at us. Now the island has grown wild and so must you. Battle with wildlife and craft your weapons. Experience the Zero Crisis finale in-game now and pick up the Season 6 Battle Pass to run wild across primitive landscapes with Laura Croft, Teen Titans Raven, and Agent Jones. So, you want to go on the web and check this out. That's fn.gg slash season six, six, the numeral, to go uh, see it all. fn.gg slash season six. Our thanks to Fortnite for their support of the show and Relay FM. They have, quote, announced their intent to nominate, there you go, that's a very government sentence. Yeah. Uh, Bill Nelson mm-hmm. to be the NASA administrator. So
1: r- rumors were flying about this, and we talked about this with Eric Berger when he was on, but now it's official that they have this intent to nominate him. Uh, there's a process where he's formally nominated, and then he gets interviewed by people in the Senate where he was for many years, and then they approve him or not, which they will totally approve him. You know, So we've talked about it a bit, just to remind you, he was a congressman from Florida's space coast and then became a U.S. senator in Florida. He lost his election in 2018, I think. Um, he was also on the space shuttle pre-Challenger. Um, he was, as Eric Berger pointed out, uh, called ballast by his crewmates because he sort of was there to be a congressman in space, um, but didn't. You know, there's there was some criticism about it. It was a PR move. You know, I don't know how much of that is is on him. But he definitely took the opportunity to go into space. And so now you've got uh, a NASA administrator who's a politician, but who has also been to space. And I thought I would break down what I see, at least, as the advantages and disadvantages okay. of this decision. Um, chime in okay. as, as you like. Um, so on the advantages side, one, he's close with Biden. They work together in the Senate. So they they know each other really well. Having the NASA administrator be a well-known person who has worked with the president and has the ear of the president, always a good thing to have the ear of the president if you're the NASA administrator. And these, these, this is as close a relationship as you will probably see between a NASA administrator and a president. Yeah.
0: I was thinking about Brian Stein and his relationship with the Trump administration. And at times they seem to be saying different things. And it really seemed to fall to Mike Pence, the vice president, to sort of handle space stuff Mm -hmm. you know they would be saying one thing of course you know trump would say whatever he wanted and i i I would imagine that with biden there'll be a much closer more lockstep messaging than we have seen over the last four years yeah in fact
1: i would go so far as to say that when i look at this appointment and i want to hear what other people think about this i'm really fascinated to hear their their takes on it as this goes on but it strikes me that that Biden isn't going to have vice president Harris run the space council. Maybe I'm wrong, but like this feels like the Mike Pence role in some ways, right? Which is, this is the person who's been tasked at the administration to do the space stuff. It's a little, it's, it's a, uh, literally it's a gray, gray haired person, <laughs> right? Who's close to the president who has been tasked with doing this job. And this is at the administrative level, instead of being kind of like above the administrator But it is a similar thing where it's like this is the person who is the direct conduit between the president and NASA. Yeah. Um, He knows all the players on both sides because he has history in aerospace and he has history in Congress and he knows the president. So I think that's an advantage, right? Like knowing the, the the lay of the land. Bridenstine showed the value in having a savvy politician running NASA because NASA's funding comes from Congress. You've got to make Congress happy and you want ideally bipartisan support from Congress because you, you really, you know, Bridenstine showed as somebody who was a former congressman, Republican congressman, he really addressed his relations with Congress on a bipartisan level. He wanted everybody to view NASA as not something for people to fight over. And we are in a very polarized political uh, moment. But uh, Bridenstine knew the risks of NASA seeming uh, political and so tried to make it, you know, again, it's still political in the sense of you got to work the work the room to get the money that you want, but not making it, well, if they like it, then we can't like it because that happens a lot in politics today.
0: In some ways, Nelson is better set up than Brian Stein on those points, um, because Stein, while he worked in a bipartisan way after he was administrator, wasn't always the most bipartisan guy beforehand. And he had some like stuff on his record like climate change and some other things that were at least perceived to be Pretty far right, and I think he, I think he did a good job once he was in office as the administrator to balance those things out. But it seems like Nelson may be a right. little ahead of where Brian stein was in those regards.
1: Yeah, um, the. So he has bipartisan support. I think that's on my list of advantages, right? Marco Rubio, who's a Republican senator from Florida, tweeted positively about the nomination and said he's going to be great, right? So it's like you got Republicans saying we'll vote for him, and they've already got a majority, so they would have – it's not going to be a problem. And that is a good sign for Nelson, and it's a good sign for NASA, I think. Um, But – Uh, I guess the other thing I'll throw in here is speaking of bipartisanship is that he was put on a space advisory committee during the Bridenstine era. So it provides at least a sort of continuity where he was a Democrat, but he was still involved at least to a certain degree in NASA stuff uh, during a Republican administration. And so, you know, he's kept his hand in the game a little bit, even post being um, voted out of office. So those are all I would say positives about this. Trying to look at the positive side. Yeah, I think so. Here's the here's the disadvantages of this. First off, just calling it out up front, a decided lack of diversity at the highest level. There were rumors that this was going to be the first woman administrator. Uh, didn't happen. He's an old white guy. There are lots of old white guys and faces of old white guys at all levels of government and in NASA. And it's a, you know a diversifying group. Uh, below him in NASA, but you know, is it inspiring to have uh, this guy? Uh, it doesn't exactly scream new ideas and innovation uh, when many of NASA's formerly held precepts. Uh, we just did the SLS segment, are in need of a rethink. Is a late, uh, is a politician in his late 70s who flew on the space shuttle before Challenger really the person to help NASA? adapt to the 21st century? I think it's a real question. Maybe this is not necessary in this job. It's certainly not what the president wants out of this job, but I think it's worth asking the question. Is this a figure who is going to lead NASA and make hard decisions to have NASA change what it's doing when this is somebody who's had a relationship with NASA since the early
0: 80s? Out of all of this, that may be what sort of worries me the most. Yeah, you're 35. Yeah. He flew on the space shuttle before
1: you were born. So he's... And again, older people, if we're lucky enough to live, we all become older people eventually. But my point is, is somebody who would in another context be retired, uh, the person who's going to inject energetic leadership and a feeling that anything can happen and we can change what's going on in an organization that does need to adapt to these rapid changes in how we view... Mm -hmm spaceflight i don't know i maybe so maybe so maybe but it it gives me pause is what i'm saying um also i gonna point out nelson himself decried Bridenstine's nomination said it's political and you shouldn't have politicians running nasa and now the space shoe is on the other space foot senator <laughs> nelson <laughs> so what, how do you feel now and i, I mean the counter argument is yeah but look how that turned out it turned out fine so maybe that's the truth of it is that he was wrong and he can say, well, I think I think Jim Bridenstine showed us that, that that's not necessarily true. Generally, Nelson has also been seen as somebody who goes to bat for big government programs like SLS, has been negative about commercial space on multiple occasions. It's unclear how his position has evolved. My guess... Is that when he's prompted to talk about this in front of Congress, he will say that his position has evolved in the same way that Jim Bridenstine, when asked about climate change, said that his position had evolved. Yeah. Because now he was going to be running a, a science organization instead of running for Congress in Oklahoma, where if you're running for Congress in Oklahoma, you got to say it's a hoax and there is no global warming. But when you're running NASA, you've got to say, well, yeah, it's real because yeah. science tells us so. Like, that's just that's the law of the land. Um so commercial, you know, but but be that as it may, commercial space one of the real highlights of the last decade and one of the great opportunities for for spaceflight and for NASA going forward in this century. And this guy was against it. I think that's a black mark. I think that's a problem. I think that's something that that he needs to be called on. And I sure hope his position has evolved and evolved in a legitimate way and not just in a way that you tell people in Congress and then you go back to your desk and you say we're going to keep this SLS going no matter what. And uh, let's soft, let's slow play our uh, deals with commercial space. Cause I don't like it.
0: Like that's the question is, does he really, has his position really evolved or not? I mean, and, and more than just supporting those things, like he was 10 years ago, really a key part in forming the SLS project. And there's this really famous quote has been going around that if you can't do a rocket for 11 and a half billion, you ought to close up shop. And, Double that. I mean, that quote's going to come up in his hearing, I think, and I, I, I desperately want to hear what he thinks about the SLS's place now in this competitive landscape. Yeah, right. You know, ten years ago, no one could build something like this except for the government, and that's not true anymore. And you know, see previous section.
1: So we're going to be—he's going to talk about an evolved opinion, and we're going to have to all read the tea leaves about whether he really means it or not, and what are the details and what he says about his evolved opinion. Because he's also going to get questions from from senators who are uh, big into SLS, right, and big into that government program. Because I've got engineers in Alabama and Mississippi, and in every congressional district who want. To work on SLS and we pay them and it's a very important program and he's going to have to, he's going to be asked those questions about say good things about SLS, please, Mr. Nominee. And what does he say there too? So it's going to be interesting. We're well, going to watch that. That 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 might be a hearing I actually <laughs> watch. How about that? Um, bigger picture then to wrap this up, what does it mean for NASA, right? Like it's, it, it. one, it feels like the model of having a politician at the top level is becoming entrenched. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. Um, I'm sure that different people are going to have different takes on this and I would be interested in hearing the reaction at all levels of NASA. But Jim Bridenstine became an effective administrator at least in part because he balanced NASA's ideals with the connections he made to the executive branch and to Congress. And at the very least, this suggests there's some sort of model here of creating a position. Where somebody is a bridge between the raw politics of getting funded and NASA's ideals. Because NASA can dream of going to the moon or Mars or whatever, but if there isn't money for it, they're not going to do it. The counter argument is that once you put a politician in charge of NASA acting politically, you're making NASA a political enterprise. And it's disappointing because it's not supposed to be that. It is supposed to be bipartisan, focused on science and truth in ways that politics isn't. And it's sort of a contradiction of NASA. But at the same time, it's also a giant government organization, a giant government entity. And at some level, politics is going to be involved. So I guess there's that argument that do you want the person running NASA to be kind of hapless at politics and just sort of doing what the White House tells them to do? Or do you want them good at politics and being a good advocate for NASA? And I think the ideal case, at least thus far, is Jim Bridenstine, right? Where he's a politician, he has connections in Congress, and I really believe Bridenstine, I never doubted that Bridenstine didn't have NASA's best interests at heart. And that's the danger, is that you get somebody who is going to do a hatchet job on NASA's interests, and they're, they're put into a position of authority at NASA to mess things up. Uh, but that didn't happen with Bridenstine. And maybe, maybe this is the truth of it, is that there is a, a model where it's actually good to have a good politician running NASA because they're going to navigate NASA in ways that somebody who is uh, more of an amateur at Washington politics wouldn't.
0: If this is the new normal, that from here on out politicians get the NASA administrator job— I think there's a cooling effect within NASA, when within NASA leadership, to stay the course, right? If you're working at NASA, it's your lifelong career with a goal of being an, the administrator one day. And surely there are people there with that goal. Are they going to be more easily swayed to leave or to do something else because they know they're never going to – there's always going to be a ceiling and that ceiling's going to be a politician put in by the incoming president? Right. You're an astronaut and then you work in administration and maybe you go to work at an aerospace firm
1: or something. But you're always thinking like, well, it's people like me who end up being the NASA administrator eventually. And I'm connected to politics of one party or the other. But I'm, I, I'm coming at it from the perspective of being somebody who understands NASA and was an astronaut. And this seems to send the message that, no, really, this is going to be a politician. This, this person's background is going to be a politician. And and that is troubling also because right like you have to hope that they actually care about NASA's mission and we're not just put into this because this was the next political appointment yeah. available and so you say yes um, and that then you do you know you know I don't know what the morale is inside NASA for this right do they feel like oh no this is good is Bridenstine for example like was he generally liked because he got what NASA was about and he got NASA what it needed. Or was he seen as being this interloper from outside who was sort of besmirching the neutrality and purity of NASA? I don't know. I I, I don't know how people at NASA feel about that. Uh, there are some other questions like uh, associate administrator. There were rumors that um, that that might be sort of a one-two punch where they're like, well, Nelson's going to be number one, but the number two is going to be this person who is an, more of a NASA insider and maybe a former astronaut or somebody who's spent a lot of time in NASA as administrator. A name that's been floated is Pam Melroy, who is a former astronaut. Um, and that might be sort of the new model, right? The one-two punch of a, an administrator who's politically connected and an associate administrator who is is the more traditional, sort of like more focused on the science, somebody who's an astronaut, that sort of person. And we'll see. It does seem, as we read the tea leaves so far, that continuity is the plan for now. And I think that's the big thing that is looking good thus far. We'll see more uh, in the Biden administration is um, we don't seem to be the, in in the case that has been the case the last few times an administration has changed, where the new administration decides to monkey with the plans at NASA. You lose momentum. Everything gets reshuffled. There are years If not a decade lost, and it seems like there's no real desire in the Biden administration to derail this sort of uh, moon, you know, moon plan with Gateway and with Artemis. That seems to still be there as continuity, no matter who is in in charge. And I think that's a good thing. Just you know, we can debate the, you can debate Artemis if you want to. Um, should we really be doing that and all that? But there's no denying the fact that NASA has kind of gone nowhere and done nothing in many periods of time, where the administrator just the, every administration changes direction from the last one. There's you you
0: end up nowhere, or you end up with uh, competing goals and nothing ever happens. Right. You know, or, or programs that aren't given enough time to incubate, which I think has really been the story of probably the last two or three administration changes
1: yeah perhaps the last 20 years right like definitely the last 15 years because we had the big sort of like bush administration plan and then obama attacked the other direction and then trump attacked the other direction and now biden seems to be like no let's just keep going down that path and there'll be tweaks and there'll be like more realistic dates and changes in priorities for sure but it seems like we're not just gonna Uh, flip the switch and say, no, forget that. We're going to go in a different direction now. So regardless. But much more, we really, like you said earlier, we really don't know any details about how this administration views NASA. So I I imagine the first real hint we'll get will be from Bill Nelson in his confirmation hearings. And we'll cover it when it happens.
0: Sure. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Very busy. Lots of stuff happening. Uh, Well, I think that does it for this Episode of Lift Off. If you want to find links to all the stories we spoke about, we have them over on the website at relay.fm/liftoff/146. While you're there, you can uh, send us an email with feedback or follow up. You can become a member and support the show directly—something that we both really appreciate. You can find us online. Jason is on Twitter as snell and you can find me there as ismh. Uh, Before we go, I want to tell you about another show on Relay that you may enjoy, and that is Pictorial. It's a show about art history. It's for anyone and everyone. You don't have to have an art degree to listen. You don't have to be like me and change your major two years into college from art to journalism and have to explain to your parents why that was a good idea. It's for everyone. The most recent episode is about uh, NFTs and how they are changing the art world. It's Fascinating stuff. It is hosted by our friends Quinn and Betty. Go check it out at relay.fm slash pictorial or search for pictorial wherever you get your shows. I'd like to thank our sponsors for this episode of Liftoff, Squarespace, and Fortnite by Epic Games. And until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.